everyone, and welcome to Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. I'm your host, Sarah Sin, tackling horror movies, peeling back the layers, and taking a deeper dive into them. Again, on the show, I don't just discuss my love for horror movies. I like to bring in the aspect and perspective of horror and history, how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am a psychology major, I like to bring this aspect and perspective in as well and see how the horror movie I'm focusing on reflects psychology and mental health in any way. Well, um, today is Christmas and I'm recording today because I've had the last couple of days off. So I was able to get my notes done. So I just want to say Merry Christmas, everyone. So I guess this is my Christmas special, but I didn't um, actually choose a Christmas themed horror movie because I did something of that caliber last year. I decided to dedicate this entire month to killer dolls because I feel like, yeah, that's kind of Christmassy in its own way, I guess. Like I said, last year I did like underrated horror movies, um, like Christmas horror movies. So I wanted to do something a little different this year. So um, still, I mean, Merry Christmas, everyone. I'll just say this is my Christmas special, even though I didn't choose a Christmas themed horror movie. I just went with an entire theme of killer dolls this month, and I've been having a lot of fun with it. So I hope everyone's had a wonderful Christmas. Um, my daughter did. She was very happy to see what Santa brought her, and she got what she asked for. And as long as she's happy, that's all I need for Christmas is that she's happy. So when I see her face um, Christmas morning, when she sees the presents under the tree, that's enough for me. So I did get some presents this year. It was actually kind of nice. So, um, well, that was nice. I usually don't get presents. I usually have to buy my own. <laughs> so this year I actually was able to get some presents from people. So that was really nice. So anywho, I just wanted to let you guys know that I'm not quite sure yet. I haven't really made a decision, but I might not have an episode out next weekend because I am going down to a friend's house for the night for New Year's and I'm not comfortable recording anywhere but my own home. So I would have to probably record at her house and I'm just not comfortable doing that. Plus there's a lot of people in and out of that house and there's a baby, which, you know, I can't, you can't keep quiet because, you know, it's a baby. So and like I said, I'm just not comfortable recording anywhere else but my house. Like, you can always tell if I'm recording somewhere else because I'm a lot more anxious and it's a lot more um, anxiety-inducing for me. But I'm going to do my best anyways to get an episode out next um, weekend because I do have, actually, Monday, Tuesday, and Friday off. And my theme for January is um, New Year, New Fear. So I'm thinking, like, it would be really weird for me to do a New Year's-themed horror movie and you know even though I'm doing it for the whole month I'm doing New Year's themed horror movies but not even have one out for actual New Year's Day so I am trying my best I am trying to consider what I want to do it's just it's mostly the fact that I don't want to record anywhere else but my own home and I would have to record somewhere else and I'm just not comfortable with that so um and also I usually take a weekend off so if the month has so if the month has four Saturdays or four weekends I will put one out every weekend, but if it has five, I always take a weekend off just because I don't know why I just, um, it's like some kind of consistency OCD thing I have. I just like doing four and I know January has five. So I was like, well, I don't have to put one out New Year's day because you know, I will be recording somewhere else. And I'm just not comfortable with that. But then again, I'm like, well, I'm doing new year's themed horror movies and it'd be really weird not to have one out. So I'm thinking if I do end up putting one out next weekend, then I'll probably take the last weekend off because the truth is school starts, uh, spring semester starts January 25th. 
and it would be kind of nice to get a little head start in my schoolwork so I'm not like overwhelmed and stressed out all the time because it is very overwhelming to have school, be a full-time mom and work full-time um, and then have the podcast. But the podcast is like my free time. It's like what I do for fun, what I do when I need to escape the world. It's my form of escapism really. So, but it still takes time. It takes up a lot of my time, but I enjoy it. It is my time. It's my free time. It's what I enjoy. It's my escapism. So anyways, just letting you know that I might not have one next weekend. I am going to try my best because I really think I'd um, I'd like to. Maybe I can convince my friend to let me record in her basement because no one goes down there and it'll be actually really quiet because it's like cement walls or something. I don't know. Anyways, I'm not sure if I have one next weekend. Um, I'm going to do my best to get one out anyways because I am doing New Year, New Fear themed for January, New Year's themed horror movies and I feel weird not having one out next weekend so if not then I'll probably take the last weekend off so anyways that's my plan I'm not sure what I'm gonna do um I just know that I will be taking one weekend off in January so it's either next weekend or the last weekend so anyways I'm going to stop rambling on like I do and I'm gonna move on to well the last movie for my theme of may you never be too old to play with killer dolls and I'm going with 1988's Child's Play Directed by Tom Holland, starring Katherine Hicks as Karen Barclay, Chris Sarandon as Mike Norris, Alex Vincent as Andy Barclay, Brad Dorff as Charles Lee Ray slash The Voice of Chucky, Dinah Manoff as Maggie Peterson, Neil Guantoli as Eddie Caputo, sorry if I messed that up, and Ray Oliver as John Bishop. So horror history, I'm definitely going to say there's um, a lot about consumerism buy, 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 spend, 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 the whole idea of like, you need to buy this, you need to get things bigger, faster, you know, you want to do, you want what everyone else has kind of idea, like the, it's the whole idea of like consumerism, also the whole idea of like these big toy fads that came out, like you got to buy the latest toy for your kid. I remember like um, Tickle Me Elmo was a big toy fad, Cabbage Patch Kids was a big fad, you know, the fact that these places were selling out of these popular toys, but your kid got to have one. So people went to extreme lengths to get these toys for their children. I also think it talks a little bit, and this is more towards the beginning, but it still definitely, I think, plays a part in horror history, is, uh, or history, sorry, is the whole idea of like retail jobs, customer service jobs, like kind of like how one is treated even as an employee. Um, you see this towards the beginning with Karen Barclay and her job, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but I do think it focuses or at least reflects a little bit on the whole idea of like the, uh, customer service job, which I've done before in my past. I've done retail jobs. I've done a lot of customer service jobs. So I've definitely been in that line of work. And I also think it talks a lot about single motherhood, the ups and downs, how hard it can be, the struggles a single mother has, but also the whole idea of like how far a mother will go, what length she will go in order to protect her child. So I think that's a big aspect too. This movie is um, a lot, I think a lot of it centers around single motherhood because Karen is a single mom and she does struggle. There are ups and downs. It is hard. And, but she will go to extreme lengths if it means protecting her own child. So psychology, mental health, definitely antisocial personality disorder. There's greed, single family homes, like the whole family structure, family dynamics, some childhood trauma. I say pediophobia, which is the fear of dolls. Facing the one, um, sorry. Facing one's fears, and then there's lots of like metaphors and symbolism, I think, um, about fear in this movie that, again, I will go over later. So what is this movie about? Charles Lee Ray, the infamous Lakeshore Strangler, dies by gunshot wound in a toy store, but not before performing a voodoo chant over a good guy doll. Later on, single mom Karen 
buys a good guy doll from a peddler in the back alley for her son for Andy's sixth birthday. Soon people start dying and Andy seems to be the only connection between the deceased. But Andy claims that his doll Chucky is responsible for all those deaths. Is Andy lying and committing these crimes but hallucinating that Chucky is the culprit? Or is Chucky really alive, inhabited by the soul of Charles Lee Ray? Okay, I'm going to move on to the subgenre. And even though this is a movie about a killer doll possessed by the spirit of a serial killer, I also feel that it has some, like, slasher flick aspects. Like, I feel like it also um, tries to follow the actual, like, slasher flick subgenre formula while also dabbling in, like, the possession horror subgenre, if that makes any sense. You know, it's got a possessed killer doll that is seeking revenge against those who have done him wrong and those who kind of get in his way in a very, like, slasher-esque manner. And that's kind of why I'm kind of leaning more towards the slasher. I think it's both. Like, I definitely think it could be put under possession horror subgenre, but also in the slasher flick um, horror subgenre at the same time. But since I have recently gone over possession horror, um, and it has been a while since I've gone over the definition of a slasher flick, I'm going to go over the definition of the slasher flick now. Slasher flick. This subgenre is one of the most popular within the horror genre that exploded in the 80s and completely took off and never stopped. Some of the most iconic horror villains, Freddy, Jason, Michael, all come from this subgenre. This subgenre usually, but not always, involves a killer who tends to wear a mask that stalks and kills teenagers because they were partying, drinking, doing drugs, and having sex. Many killers from these movies are seeking revenge against those who have done them wrong, have hurt them in any way, or just plain old get in their way. In most of these movies, there is a final girl who the killer must go up against for the final showdown. In this subgenre, the body count tends to be high, and the deaths are typically bloody, inventive, over the top, and they don't skip on the gore. Okay, the first thing I'd like to go over is actually the whole idea of single motherhood. How I believe that this movie actually captures the struggles of being a single parent, yet the lengths a parent will go to protect her child, especially that of single motherhood um, and being a mother, because this is a movie that focuses on a mother. So I will be saying probably single mother and mother throughout the whole thing, because that's what this movie focuses on. I know that there are you know, single fathers out there. But since this movie is about a single mom, I definitely say it reflects on single motherhood and being a mother is what I'm trying to say. So, and this is actually something that I really enjoyed watching this movie this time around is that I didn't catch on to the whole idea of like single motherhood. Um, the first or well, really the previous times I watched this movie, you know, and it's probably because I am a mother and I am a single mother and this is definitely something I can completely relate to and the truth is I would do anything for my child so I actually feel like I can relate to Karen Andy's mother um completely as I'm watching this movie and watching her character in this movie like the struggles she has you know she's trying to balance work picking up her child from school the love she has for her son and the length she will go to again to protect her son I really think she makes a very relatable character. And for myself, she's a very relatable character um, to me. So I feel like, again, this movie really captures what it's like to be a single parent or to be a single mother, even though this is a horror movie. It still shows a hardworking, loving mother who will go to extreme lengths and face danger in order to protect her child. 
So I think this movie does this very well. So as usual, I'm going to be going over a few scenes and then try to explain a little more in depth um, what I'm trying to say about the whole idea of how this movie captures single motherhood and being a single parent. So we're first introduced to Karen um, as she's asleep while her son Andy is trying to make her a surprise breakfast, even though it's his birthday. He's still trying to make her breakfast in bed. And um, he goes over, he wakes her up and then asks if he can go open his presents and they're going to go open his presents. So Andy, can we open my presents now, mommy? Karen, yes, we can. Andy, terrific. And then they go, they go into the kitchen, which is really the kitchen living room area. Andy, can I open this one first, mommy? Can I, can I? Karen, Andy, don't you want to start with the smaller one first? Andy shakes his head no. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Andy opens the presents. It's not a good guy doll like he wanted. It's actually clothes. Well, what do you think? You need these clothes so badly. Hey, I think they're going to be okay. We'll just have to take them up just a couple of inches. What's the matter? Andy, nothing. Karen, oh, I know. You want some toys, don't you? Not boring old clothes. Try the other one. Andy opens a smaller present, uh, present and it's a good guy. It's a good guy tool set. Well, what do you think? Andy, I want a good guy doll to go with it. Karen, I know you do, Andy, but I didn't know about it in time this month to save up for it. So just in that one line, just that last line she says, you can tell that she feels bad that she couldn't get him the toy she know he desperately wanted because it's expensive and she didn't have a chance to save up for it. And a lot of times, I, you know, this means giving up something for yourself. I know that for me, like it means giving up something you want or something you normally get um, if it means saving up extra money to get something for your kid. So that line for herself was, I think, definitely just a completely relatable line. And it's just one line where she says like she didn't have time. She didn't know in time in order to save up for it because it's an expensive toy, even though she know he really wanted it. Um, again, it means giving up something, you know, I know for myself that, you know, right now I, I'm lucky. I got a really good paying job now. Like I'm not struggling as much. I mean, I still struggle. I'm not saying I don't struggle, trust me, but I'm not struggling as much as I was. Um, but I do remember having to be like, okay, well I can't buy my face wash. I have to buy the cheap stuff or I have to give up some of the food I like in order to save the money to get something for my daughter. So I definitely understand where she's coming from because it is, it's hard when you're a single income family you know, and then you still not only are trying to provide for your child, but you're also trying to give them, you're not trying to give them everything they want, but you know, when it is their birthday or even Christmas, like right now today, you still want to get them at least one thing they wanted. And it's obvious all Andy wanted was a good guy doll. So I definitely understand where she's coming from. So next we see, um, Karen at work. She works retail at the jewelry counter and her friend Maggie comes in with some good news. Maggie, Karen, Karen. Hi, Maggie. You know that doll you wanted for Andy, the one that cost a hundred bucks? Karen, yeah, the good guy doll. Maggie, there's a peddler in the alley behind the store, and I think he's got one. Karen, what? What would a peddler be doing with the doll? Maggie, who cares? Would you grab your purse and come on? We can get a deal on it. Karen, but I can't just leave my counter. Maggie, do you want the damn doll or don't you? Karen, of course I do. Maggie, well, come on. So the girls go to the back. They go to the back alley. They meet the peddler. Um, it is the good guy doll she wants. It's what Andy wants. Um, the peddler's asking $50 and Maggie's like, no, that's too expensive. And Karen, um, they end up agreeing. Cause I, um, I think Maggie's just like, no, $10. And the peddler's like 30. And then Karen's like, no, 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 it's fine. I, 
I can pay 30. And I mean, $30 over a hundred is um, a pretty good deal to me. But I know Maggie at the same time is even saying like, no, it's too much money. It's too much money. It could be broken. It could be this. You don't know what's going on. But in that moment, Karen doesn't care. She just knows it's a good guy doll. And that's exactly what Candy wants. So she does get it. She buys it for $30 from the peddler and the girls go back into the store. Um, Mr. Griswell. Miss Barclay, so nice of you to drop by. Have a nice break. Karen, I'm sorry, Mr. Criswell. I was only gone for a minute. Maggie, have a heart, Criswell. We were just downstairs buying a little boy a birthday present. Criswell, we have specified break times for activities like that, Miss Peterson. Miss Howe has taken sick and we're shorthanded tonight. You'll have to fill in for her. Karen, I can't. I have to pick up my son at the daycare center in an hour. Criswell, I'm sorry. This is an emergency. Maggie, wait a second. I'll take over for her. Criswell, Mr. Peterson, you work in shoes, not in jewelry. And he says this to Karen. You'll just simply have to do it. Now, you can take off at five, but you'll have to be back at seven. Karen, it's my son's birthday. Criswell, Miss Barclay, are you happy with your job here? Karen, yes, of course I am. Criswell, then I suggest, Maggie cuts him off. Hey, chill out, would you, Walter? Huh? I'll take care of Andy for you. Karen, Maggie, you can't do it again. Maggie, don't be silly. Be the hottest date I've had in months. Criswell, I can't imagine why. So, um, backtracking just a slight bit. Karen gets a good deal on a good guy doll, even though, like I said, her friend Maggie thinks that she's spending too much money. And I don't think she's saying it to be rude. I think she's just looking out for Karen because she is Karen's really good friend. And she's probably heard about her financial woes and probably heard a lot about like what the struggle she's having is. And she's just looking out for her. But like I said, Karen's definitely willing to pay $30 over a hundred if it means getting the doll she, her son so desperately wants, you know? So, and I mean, to me at $30 is a good deal over a hundred anyways. I mean, I'd be totally excited to get a deal like that. But again, like I can definitely relate to that. You know, when I'm looking for a the birthday present she wants or even Christmas presents. I still, I spend probably an hour or so going through all different sites, um, to buy the present that she wants to get the best deal. So I definitely relate to that. Like the whole idea of like trying to get a good deal on it and the whole idea of like your, your child just really wants this one present and you're going to do anything to get it. And like I said, I still think Maggie was just trying to look out for her friend. She saw the good deal ahead, but she still wanted to look out for her because I think in her mind, $30 is still a lot of money for Karen to be spending on a good guy doll. But to me, it's like, I'd rather spend 30 than a hundred, if that makes sense. So before I move on with, again, the whole idea of single motherhood and a mother going to extreme lengths for her child, I want to talk about the scene I just went over with Mr. Criswell and Karen and um, Maggie, because that scene I hate, like not hate it because it's a bad scene, but because I've worked retail, I've worked plenty of customer services, uh, service jobs. And that feeling of like, one, you have to keep that job at all costs because, you know, you don't have the money to spend time looking for a new job or like the feeling of easily being replaced. Like, obviously, Karen needs this job so she can um, keep her apartment and support her child. You know, again, it's hard raising a child, especially when there's only one income. Like, it's incredibly hard. You know, I mean, this is the 80s, but still, it probably was hard to raise a child with one income in the 80s when it's just you, you know, and you still have to pay for daycare, you have to pay for babysitters, you have to pay for all this stuff. So it's still um, financially stressful 
to raise a child, I think, with one income, even the, even in the 80s, as opposed to now. I think it is a, a struggle and it's stressful. And as a single mother, I definitely can relate to that. And, you know, I feel like Chris Bell's using that against her. You know, it's the whole idea of like, do you like your job, Miss, you know, Barclay? Like, oh, do you like your job? Because, you know, I could find someone else to work here. So it's like, do you, you, he knows she needs that job. You know, it takes time to get a new job and time means no money. So if you're not working, you're not making money. If you lose a job, it takes time to find a new job, which means you're not making money and that's stressful. So I think Criswell is using that against her. And then on top of it, the way he says it is almost like, well, just remember you're easily replaceable. Like I can get anyone to get this job who wants a job and needs a job. So do you like this job? Well, you do like this job. So you're going to do what I say. You know, I don't care that you have a kid. I don't care that you have to pick him up from daycare. I don't care that it's your son's birthday. I'm shorthanded. I know you need this job. Therefore, you're going to work and you're not going to say no. And that's the reason why this scene is like so hard to watch because I have been there in many retail jobs where they treat you like that. They do. They treat you like you're replaceable. Um, they use the idea of like losing, like they threaten you pretty much with your job. Like they don't straight up be like, well, either you do this or you're fired. But the way they talk to you is definitely implying like, well, you either do as I'm asking you. I don't care about anything else. Like we're shorthanded. You're working or you lose this job. And then they also imply like, just so you know, like you're also replaceable. I've actually had, you know, now that I think about it, I had a job one time tell me, be like, we have a lot of applications for people who want to be here and people who are willing to work this job. Like basically telling me like, you're going to do what we want. Otherwise we're going to find someone else. And I was like, like nowadays I would, now I would be like, you know what? Screw you. I, I don't need this job that bad that you're threatening me, you know? But back then it was like, well, I need this job because I needed my own apartment and I was paying all these bills on my own. I was living by myself. And I guess I had an apartment by myself. I had all these bills to pay. And I kept thinking like, I need this job. If I lose this job, then that's time I have to spend looking for another job. So anyways, I'm going to continue on to what I'm saying. I just know that this scene is very relatable, not only because I am a single parent, but also because I've worked retail. So I'm going to move on. Okay. So once Karen brings Chucky home to Andy, that's when things start to happen. First, Maggie is killed while um, she's babysitting Andy. You know, Karen gets off the bus. She sees the cops in an ambulance outside her apartment building. And of course she thinks the worst. And she starts to head up to her apartment, you know, running up the stairs, trying to get up there, realizes it's her apartment that they're there for. And she finds out that um, Maggie's dead and that Andy starts to blame Chucky for it. Later, Eddie Caputo is killed and Andy's actually at the scene of the crime. Karen goes to the station to talk to Norris, um, to Detective Norris. Andy still blames Chucky. So Andy's actually taken away from Karen and is supposed to stay at like an institute for a few days. Karen goes home um, with Chucky. She takes Chucky home from the station and she realizes um, that Chucky's actually real. And this is when she starts to go on a pursuit to find the truth and to prove her son's innocence. And then this kind of shows the lengths she will go for her son, the danger she's willing to face, the harm she's willing to put herself through or even... um face like potential harm to herself if it means protecting her son and if it means you know proving his innocence and if it means really just the length she'll go for her child is pretty much 
what the uh, the rest of this movie I see as. So again, I'm going to go over a few scenes and then I'll try to um, tackle them a little. Okay. Again. So when Karen gets back from, you know, Andy going to the Institute, she has Chucky with her. She sits Chucky down and then she goes to the good guy box. She picks it up. She's going to throw it away and the batteries fall out and she picks them up, goes over, picks up Chucky, opens up his back and sees that he has no batteries. He talks. He's like, hi, I'm Chucky. Want to play or something like that? She drops him, picks him up again and eventually is like, it's, she realizes he's real. And then she kind of, she goes, talk to me. Come on. Talk. I said, talk to me, damn it. All right. I'm going to make you talk. And she picks up Chucky and she starts the fire in the fireplace. I said, talk to me, damn it. Or else I'm going to throw you in the fire. Chucky, you stupid bitch, you filthy slut. I'll teach you to fuck with me. And then this is when she realizes that Chucky's real and that he actually attacks her. So um, later on, um, she actually goes to Detective Norris. So Chucky, so after Chucky attacks her, he runs out of the apartment. She goes and tries to find uh, Detective Norris. Karen, oh, Detective Norris. Norris, Miss Barclay, what are you doing back here? Karen, Andy was telling the truth. Chucky is alive, and he killed Eddie Caputo. Norris, what? Karen, I took him home to my apartment, and I was about to throw away the box he came in when the batteries fell out. Don't you see? He's been moving and talking for days without any batteries in him. Norris, what are you talking about? Karen, how I found out the doll is alive. See, I threatened to throw him into the fireplace when all of a sudden he came alive in my hand. I dropped him, he got up, and ran out of the apartment. Norris, good night, Miss Barclay. Karen, wait a minute. I'm telling you the truth. He killed Maggie. He killed Eddie Caputo. Norris, look, Miss Barclay, I sympathize with you. I really do. I hated what happened in there today, but lying is not going to help your son. Karen, lying? Does this look like I'm lying? And she shows the bite mark that choked, uh, sorry, the um, Chucky, Chucky bit her arm and she's showing the bite mark. Norris, how did you get that? Karen, Chucky bit me. Norris, oh, for God's sakes. Karen, all right. Don't believe me. Norris, where are you going? Karen, to find Chucky. Norris, how are you going to do that? Karen, I bought it from a peddler where I work. I'll start there. Norris, that isn't a good part of town to be in at this time of night. Miss Barclay, do you hear me? You don't want to go down there at this time of night. But of course, Karen doesn't listen. She does go down to that dangerous part of town. Um, again, she doesn't care. She's going to go to that dangerous part of town if it means proving that her son was telling the truth. If it means proving her son's innocence, if it means getting her son back, it doesn't matter. She's going to do what it takes to get her son back in order to protect her child. She goes to these extreme lengths. So she does go into that part of town. She does search for the peddler. She finds him. She asks where he got the doll. He wants money. She doesn't have any. So he starts advancing her and then he like pins her onto the car. But that's when Nora shows up and he starts to like, show his gun and everyone's like, Oh no, it's a cop. Then the rest of the people run away, but the peddler stays and Norris tells the peddler to, you know, say, where did you get the doll? We want to know where you got the doll. And, um, the peddler says like in a burned out toy store on Wabash. And that's when Norris realizes, um, the store where the peddler got the doll is the same store that Charles Lee Ray died in. Um, and he decides to, um, Miss Barclay home. So after that, so sorry. So after that, he takes Miss Barclay home. The following day, 
Karen decides to check out Chucky's apartment on her own. Oh, sorry. I forgot to say. So Norris actually tells Karen that he knows the toy store that the doll was found in, that the peddler found the doll in, because it's where he killed Charles Lee Ray. So that's why the following day, Karen decides to actually go to Chucky's apartment on her own um, to find, again, find some answers. There she finds like this mural painted on the wall of this like voodoo priest and another wall. It says, oh, thank you, mighty Dumbala for life after death. And she's looking around and for her, she's just trying to find answers. And again, she doesn't care that she's alone in this apartment or could potentially get hurt or that she's potentially putting herself in a form of danger. She is there to find answers to prove that her son is right, to prove that Chucky's real and alive, that he killed Maggie and Eddie. It doesn't matter. She's going to do this for her child. So again, it's like the idea of the length she'll go. You know, she went to a bad part of town knowing something could happen to her, but it didn't matter. She was going to get answers from that peddler. She goes into a serial killer's apartment, doesn't care. She's there to find answers, doesn't care if it's in a dangerous part of town or the potential harm that could come her way. She doesn't care. She's going to find the answers she needs. So Norris actually shows up at Chucky's apartment, finds Karen. Um, He actually says that he does believe her because Chucky actually attacked him in the car. And this is where they're led to John Bishop's place where they learn how to kill Chucky. And I'm actually going to go over the whole scene between Chucky and John Bishop later. And I'll explain that. But so they go to John Bishop. They learn how to kill Chucky. They go back to Karen's apartment where Chucky is performing the chant to take over Andy's body. They bust in the door because Chucky or no, Andy actually had barricaded it um, to keep Chucky out. So they bust in. And of course, um, Karen sees what's happening and she doesn't even hesitate. She doesn't even think twice. She just goes straight to Chucky and like picks him up to get him off her son. And he starts attacking her and like hitting her. And she didn't care again. It's like, she didn't care. She saw her son in danger. She just went over and wanted to take care of the problem, which was Chucky. So, uh, later on, Karen actually ends up shooting Chucky because he was attacking Norris. Um, she trips, falls, Chucky then attacks her again. And then this is where her and Andy actually light Chucky on fire, which is another scene I'm going to go over later um, because it's tied to something else I want to talk about. Karen goes into her room um, to try to tend to Norris because he's been hurt. Andy cries out, Mommy, runs in the room where Chucky is chasing after him. She shuts and locks the bedroom door. Um, But then she realizes that the bathroom door, it has two doors to the bathroom. So one from the hallway, one from her bedroom. And Chucky's trying to get in through the hallway door. So she's shutting the bathroom door um, in the bedroom area. And Chucky actually like, and she's holding it because she can't lock it from the outside. So she's holding onto the door for dear life. And Chucky like stabs through the door and even like slices her hand. Um, But she continues to hold the door shut. um, And he stabs the door like five more times, each time getting closer and closer to Karen's head. But in the end, um, they do kill Chucky. They shoot him in the heart. Chucky dies. But that's another scene that it's a little short scene. It's another scene I really enjoy because even though she got cut and she knows that she can be stabbed and fatally stabbed, she's still going to hold that door shut um, because it means protecting her child. So I'm going to talk about Karen for just a minute. So again, Karen finds out Chucky's real. He attacks her. She then goes to the cop to prove her son's innocence. Even at one point, she kind of grabs Norris and starts yelling at him. 
And then she goes into a dangerous part of town to find answers. She goes to that serial killer, you know, Chucky, uh, sorry, Charlie Ray's um, apartment alone to continue to search for answers. Um, when she sees her son in danger, when, you know, Chucky's performing the champ, she doesn't hesitate to grab Chucky and fight him. And then again, even risks her life when she's holding this door shut by Chucky stabbing the door. And he's stabbing through the door, so he's going to get her at some point if she doesn't stop holding it. But she continues to hold on if it means keeping her son alive is the whole idea. So, again, it's the lengths she will go for her son, the danger she puts herself in for her child. She will fight for the life of her child and she will risk her own life if it means Andy is safe. You know, this is what I like about Karen in this movie. And again, totally relatable character, especially for me as a single mother and as a mother, is that she does not care what she has to do if it means protecting her son, saving her son. And again, the only thing I can say is the length she will go through for that child, because that's as a parent, that's what you do. You know, you will go to extreme lengths if it means protecting your own child. And that's why I really like Karen is because the first part of the movie, you are seeing her as a single parent that is probably struggling. The hard times it can be or, or how hard it can be at times, because it is hard at times. It's hard being a parent in general. But from my perspective as a single parent, it, it is hard being a single parent. You know, it's just you. So the ups, the downs, it shows it just shows a really nice not nice, but it really captures, I think, what single motherhood is in the first half. Um, like I said, the struggles, having the job, trying to balance everything um, from a job to taking care of your kid. Um, and then it flips over to the lengths that this mother will go to protect her child. She doesn't care if she puts herself in danger. She doesn't care that she gets hurt. She's going to protect her child at all costs. So this mother, Karen, she loves her son doesn't hesitate or think twice about doing what needs to be done in order to protect her child. And that's what the whole, I think, second half of the movie is. Once she, um, once Andy, uh, sorry, once Andy goes into the Institute, that's when um, she switches modes when she finds out when Chucky's alive. So that's the thing I really liked about this movie. And it's definitely something I caught on to this time around is the whole idea that it captures what it means to be a single parent. And I think it captures the good and the bad. But most of all, I like that Karen is a fighter and that she's going to fight and she's going to protect her son and that she will put herself in danger and she will not hesitate to make sure that that child is safe. And that is definitely an aspect that I picked up this time around that I never even noticed the previous times around I watched the movie, but it's something I definitely, definitely enjoyed this time around. So definitely think Karen is, is an awesome and completely, totally relatable character. Okay, so um, the next thing I wanted to go over is a couple of, like, two little small things I kind of wanted to talk about really quickly and then dive into something else. Um, pretty much the second point I wanted to talk about. So first I wanted to talk a little bit about Charlie Ray's actual name, like where it originates from. And Charles comes from Charles Manson. Lee is for Lee Harvey Oswald. And Ray is for James Earl Ray. And these are three, like, notorious and infamous killers. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about each one. Um, Charles Manson, he, um, so he had his own cult, um, basically like his own cult based family called the Manson family. They were out in California. He basically manipulated people into doing what he wanted. Um, his followers committed murder. One of them actually being the film actress, um, Sharon Tate. Um, from what I remember, um, yeah. So I'm trying to think 
from what I remember, and I was trying to read, I don't think Manson actually ever committed the murders himself. I think he um, he just manipulated people to commit them for him. Um, like, he told them to kill, and they did it kind of idea. So I didn't do, like, as much research as I normally do because um, it was just for this little section. But I could be wrong. I'm not sure if he's actually murdered anyone. But I do know with, like, the Manson family, he basically manipulated these people to do whatever he wanted. And they went out and killed these people, brutally killed these people on his orders. So Lee Harvey Oswald, on the other hand, is the man who um, is accused or was accused of assassinating John F. Kennedy. He was a former Marine who was um, apparently an excellent marksman. Oswald was seen um, on the sixth floor of this like office building. He was holding a rifle on the day of JFK's assassination at 12.30 p.m. Um, the, three shots were fired at JFK. Oswald was seen um, leaving the scene of the crime or leaving the scene um, of the shooting and was confronted by the police. Oswald would later... Um, well, actually, you know what? He never saw trial because he was killed two days later after JFK's shooting. Um, he was shot by Jack Ruby. So I got this from biography.com. So basically he was, they think he assassinated JFK. There was no proof because he never went to trial because he was murdered two days later. He was seen in this office building with a rifle after shots were fired. Three shots were fired. JFK was shot. He was the one seen um, leaving the scene where the shots were fired is what I'm gathering. So James Earl Ray, this is the man who actually assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. And it said he was like a small time crook. He robbed gas stations and stores. Um, he had served time in prison. He escaped prison. This uh, I think it was Missouri State Penitentiary. Um, a year later is when he shot Martin Luther King Jr. from a window of a neighboring rooming house. Um, Ray was convicted and sentenced to 99 years in prison. There's more to that story, but that's like the basic of it. I didn't want to go into the whole thing. And I got that from Encyclopedia Britannica. So I just wanted to go over a little bit. So where the name came from, Charles Lee Ray, Charles Manson, Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald, Ray, James Earl Ray. Um, I'm not sure why they picked these people. Um, there's probably a reason. I didn't really look too deep into that. It is interesting to me, the people that they picked, because they're completely, I think, different. One's considered, like, a serial killer. One was accused of assassination but never proven guilty. And then one was proven guilty of assassination. So it was interesting that they picked, you know, in my mind, I, I kept thinking they would pick, like, Jeffrey Dahmer, um, you know, Ted Bundy and Charles Manson, something like that, like these notorious um, serial killers, and mix their names up. Instead, they picked different kinds of killers to make his name. So that was just something interesting I was looking up and something I was interested in was where his name came from. So that was just me doing a little bit of research on that. So it is interesting. Again, I should find out why they chose those names because now I'm interested in why they picked those names. Because like I said, I keep thinking like, wouldn't they just do like Charles Manson with Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer? But anyways, I'm going to move on. Next, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Chucky himself. Like, what he's supposed to be, um, basically what inspired Chucky. And in the movie, so he is what's called a good guy doll. And when I was reading some of these reviews and reading things on the movie, it said that he was supposed to be inspired by the Cabbage Patch doll, like by Cabbage Patch dolls, and kind of like the craze that went with it. But 
I disagree because I had a Cabbage Patch doll and said, um, in fact, I still have my Cabbage Patch doll. My daughter has a Cabbage Patch doll and Chucky looks nothing like a Cabbage Patch doll. He, the first time I ever saw Chucky, like the first time I ever saw Child's Play, the first thing I thought of was a My Buddy doll. Like, cause I remember the commercials, like for My Buddy, which was for the boys. And then there was Kid Sister for the girls. Um, and if you actually look up what a My Buddy doll looks like, it has overalls, like this baseball cap, and a striped rainbow long sleeve shirt. Does that sound, um, sound familiar to anybody else but me? Um, Chucky wears a rainbow striped shirt, overalls, no baseball hat though, but that is the first thing I thought of um, when I saw Child's Play the first time ever was a My Buddy doll. And like the whole time I'm watching him too, like, the whole my buddy theme like plays in my head and I don't own the copyrights to this, but I remember the jingle. It was like my buddy, my buddy, wherever I go, he goes, my buddy, my buddy and me, something like that. And then kid sister was the same one. It was like kid sister, kid sister, wherever I go, she goes, kid sister and me. Anyways, sorry. Those jingles always play in my head every time I think of, um, well, I think of a good guy doll. I think of a My Buddy doll, but, and I always wanted one. I never got one. I always wanted a kid sister and a My Buddy. I wanted both and I never got either one of them, but it was kind of interesting that everything I'm reading saying it was Cabbage Patch that inspired, um, the look of Chucky, but I'm sorry. It, it had, I'm wondering if like nowadays they'll admit it, but it definitely was My Buddy. Like you got to look up what a My Buddy doll looks like and look at it compared to Chucky because it is the exact same thing. And it has to be because My Buddy came out in 1985, is made by Hasbro, and it was actually geared towards boys to give them a doll they could care for. And then, like I said, they came out with Kid Sister, which was marketed towards girls. And, um, like, again, I remember wanting these dolls. And I even thought it was kind of interesting, though, that I think he was inspired by the My Buddy doll. And in the remake, it's not, I don't think it's considered a good guy doll. I think it's called a buddy doll. So it really is like a take on the My Buddy doll. Anyways, like I think part of it was Cabbage Patch because Cabbage Patch dolls were a big craze at the time. Like people were going crazy. They had to have the doll. People had to buy them. Stores were selling out. Everyone wanted one. But I definitely think the look of Chucky had to be the My Buddy doll. Like he looks exactly like a My Buddy doll. So, of course, I said mine is the baseball cap. But overalls, rainbow striped shirt, big old blue eyes, smushy cheeks, that cute smile. He looks like a My Buddy doll. But in all honesty, I'd rather have a Chucky doll or a good guy doll over a My Buddy doll now that I'm older. My daughter actually has a little Funko Chucky who apparently has been moving around the room lately. So she's always going upstairs to find out where Chucky went. So now I'm thinking, I'm like, I might actually have to buy her a real Chucky doll because she probably would actually like that. Um, I kind of want one too. So anyways, that was another thing I was trying to think about and I wanted to look up was the whole idea of like the inspiration of Chucky. So I definitely think the look has to be the My Buddy doll. I never read anything that confirmed it because I don't read every single review or every single article I find. I give myself about five or six to read. So because that's all I really have time for. Um, and most of them did say Cabbage Patch dolls were the inspiration, which I definitely understand the craze of a Cabbage Patch doll was definitely where in some inspiration definitely came from. But I think his look, his overall look, um, Chucky definitely looks like a My Buddy doll. So if you've never seen a My Buddy doll, you got to go look one up. It's it's uncanny. So 
since I am on the topic of Chucky himself, I kind of want to talk about a little bit of what Chucky himself can like actually may represent within the movie. So to start, Chucky is a doll and there is a phobia for dolls. Um, the fear of dolls, it's called pediophobia. Uh, and you also have to think, what is a phobia? It's an extreme or irrational fear or aversion to something. That's dictionary.com. So it's basically a phobia is fearing something. Um, it's fearing something specific, a specific aspect, object, or action. But in short, it's an extreme fear. So Chucky is a doll. The fear of dolls is pediophobia. A phobia is an extreme fear. And that's where I started thinking that's what Chucky represents, the idea of fear and facing that fear or having to face that fear because you have no choice but to face that fear and overcome it before it takes over and consumes you. And throughout the movie, that's pretty much what Chucky is trying to fig trying to do pretty much. He he's trying to figure out a way to get out of the doll body and into a new body, which in turn, he sets his sight on Andy because Andy is the first person he revealed himself to. So that's what Chucky's doing. He's trying to get out of the doll into a new body and take over that body. So that's where I started thinking that's where the idea of fear came from is that that's what he represents is the idea of fear, having to face that fear you have to overcome that fear. Otherwise, it consumes and takes over you. So again, I'm going to go over a few scenes, um, basically like how he gets his soul transferred into the good guy doll when he found out how to transfer his soul out of the doll and then kind of his like pursuit of Andy, which is basically the end of the movie. Then I'm going to try to go in and explain a little more of how I think he represents fear and like the whole idea of what I'm trying to say, which is he represents fear. Um, that's what he is, is a representation of someone's fear and people having to face it before it consumes them. So the movie actually opens with Charles Lee Ray running from Detective Norris. Norris, I've got the Strangler, Wabash and Van Buren. They shoot at one another and Norris gets Charles in the leg. He's about to get hit into the getaway van, which is driven by Eddie Caputo, um, which is Charles' partner in crime. Eddie sees the cop and basically pieces out of there leaving Charles behind and Charles is like yelling at Eddie trying to like run to him even though he's been shot in the leg he can't really run and Charles is like Eddie help me Eddie Eddie don't leave me god no and then Nora says give it up Ray it's over so then Charles breaks into a toy store there's this like huge good guy doll like display Norris and Charles consider to shoot at one another Charles gets shot in the chest um like chest area and he like falls kind of falls over and then he like realizes what's going on. He's like, oh, God, I'm dying. And then he yells out, you hear this, you son of a bitch. I'm going to get you for this. I'm going to get you for it. And I'm going to get you and I'm going to get Eddie no matter what. And then he kind of like grabs himself like where he's been shot. And he's like, I got to find somebody. He's like, I got to find somebody. Oh, no, I got to find somebody. I got to find somebody. And he's trying to like look around and then you can tell he's getting weak. From blood loss, he falls into this good guy doll display, knocking all the dolls over. And he kind of just looks at one of the dolls and takes it out. And that's when he starts to do his voodoo chant. And he's doing his chant. I don't know the words. Sorry. And then he says, give me the power. I beg of you. And then he chants some more. And then with that, like the storm comes, lightning hits. The store is pretty much destroyed. And Charles' bodies, Charles dies. Sorry. Charles' body dies but the soul is now in the doll. It's in the Chucky doll or the good guy doll. So 
Next, Chucky, Charles, but we call him Chucky, he goes to see his old voodoo mentor or his old voodoo priest to find out how to get his soul out of the doll and into a different body. And then this is where we meet John Bishop, who I had mentioned before. He's the one who told Karen and Norris how to kill Chucky by shooting him in the heart. But Chucky goes to talk to him because he wants to find out how to get out of that doll body and into a different body. So Chucky, hello, John, over here. Hi, it's me, Chucky. What do you think? The Grigri work? You know, when I came here learning all that stuff about how to beat death, I thought maybe you were pulling my chain. But not now. Uh-uh. Not now. Only one problem. John. What? Chucky. This. And he points to his gunshot wound. I didn't think anybody could hurt me. But last night, I got shot. You know something? It hurt. It hurt like a son of a bitch. It even bled. And why is that, John? John. You're turning human. Chucky. What? John, the more time you spend in that body, the more human you become. Chucky, you mean I have to live out the rest of my life in this body? No fucking way. You got me into this, you get me out. John, I can't do that, Chucky. Chucky, why not? John, because you're an abomination, an outrage against nature. You've perverted everything I've taught you and used it for evil, and you have to be stopped. Chucky, you know, I thought something like this might happen. That's why I prepared for it. John. What are you talking about? Chucky, your own personal mojo, Doc. And he shows him a voodoo doll. John, give me that. Chucky, sure. How do you want it? Broken leg? You shouldn't tell your customers where you hide your things like this, John. Get you into trouble. Every time. Now, how do I get out of this body? John, no, I won't tell you. Chucky, yeah? Breaks his arm. Tell me or die, John. Your choice. John, no. No, I'll tell you. You have to transfer your soul out of the doll into that of the first human being you revealed your true self to. Chucky, you mean the first person I let in on the fact that I was really alive? John shakes his head yes. <laughs> I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. The first person I let in on my little secret was a six-year-old kid. I'm going to be six years old again. Well, John, it's been fun, but I got to go. I have a date with a six-year-old boy, and you have a date with death. So long, John. And with that, he stabs the voodoo doll, which stabs John. So now that Chucky's found out he has to transfer his soul into Andy, he goes after the child. He goes to the institute that Andy's staying at, and Andy escapes. Andy, of course, heads back home to hide. Norris and Karen um, show up. So, like I said, Norris and Karen, they go to the apartment, then they find out um, that Chucky knew John Bishop. They go and see John Bishop. They find out how to kill Chucky. So then they go back to the apartment, Norris and Karen. They show up while Chucky is trying his voodoo chant on Andy. Karen picks up Chucky, fights Chucky, then eventually throws him into the fireplace. And then she's trying to reach for the matches to start the fire. She drops them. And then she sees Andy and goes, Andy, Andy, help me. The matches, Andy, please now. And then Andy goes, he picks up the match. He gets, he's about to light the fire and Chucky goes, Andy, no, please. We're friends till the end, remember? Andy, this is the end, friend. And then he strikes the match, throws into the fireplace, sets Chucky on fire. And again, this isn't the point where like Chucky actually dies, but this is the point where Andy finally takes action and fights back. So again, going back to what I was saying um, and the whole idea of Chucky representing fear is that Andy represents all of us. 
and Chucky represents the fear, whatever that may be. And, you know, many times we try to repress our fears, pretend they don't exist, or we try to run away from our fears. We don't want to face them. Um, Kind of how Andy does a little bit throughout the movie. Like, he knows Chucky, the fear is real. But there are even moments throughout the movie where even he kind of doubts himself and might believe Chucky isn't real at all. Like, he's not really trying to face the fear, I guess. So, okay. So, what I'm trying to say, because I feel like I'm not saying it very well. Like, I know what I'm saying in my brain, but I'm not feel like I'm um, explaining it very well. Is that in life in general, we, a lot of us, we all have something we fear. And a lot of times we run from that fear. We repress it. We don't try to face that fear. But in reality, if we don't face that fear and we don't take care of it, it will take over and it will consume us is the kind of the idea of what fear in general represents. And that's what I mean by Chucky represents fear and Andy is us. Chucky is whatever we fear and Andy is running from the problem. He even at times I think he believes Chucky might not be real. Um, Andy isn't facing that fear. Like there really isn't a time until the end where he actually stands up and faces that fear. And in the end, like I said, if you don't face your fear, it will consume you as Chucky tries with Andy. Andy's not facing this fear. He's not facing Chucky. Chucky is trying to take over his body. Chucky is trying to transfer his soul into Andy's body, taking over that body and consuming him basically is what I'm trying to say is that Chucky is our fear. And if we do not face our fear and we keep repressing it, we keep um, running from it. If we keep pretending it doesn't exist in the end, it will consume us. It will take over such as Chucky trying to take over Andy's body and by transferring his soul kind of idea. So that's what I'm trying to say is that Andy is us. Andy is the one who has to face Chucky. He's the one who has to face the fear. And in the end, he finally does face his fear. He does stand up and he refuses to let it consume him. You know, he does face Chucky. He refuses to let Chucky take over his body and take over his soul, you know, by, you know, setting him on fire. But up until that point, he never faces Chucky, really. He's running from Chucky. He's hiding from Chucky. Um, He sometimes doesn't believe Chucky's really exist. You know, it's the whole idea of, you know, we run from our fear. We repress our fear. We don't really want to face our fears. But if we don't, it will consume us. So that's basically like the whole idea I was trying, I'm trying to get to is that Chucky, um, Chucky and Andy represent, in short, they represent one facing their fears before they let it consume and take over them is basically what I'm trying to say is that Chucky's fear, he is whatever we fear the most. It is what the fear that we have that can eventually take over and consume us if we do not take care of that problem, if we do not face that fear. So Andy's us, Chucky's fear. Throughout the movie, Andy's running from Chucky, hiding from Chucky. Chucky's trying to take over Andy's body. So again, it's fear. We run from it. If we continue to run from it and hide from it, it will consume and take over us. So that's kind of what I, if that makes sense, I hope that makes sense because I feel like I'm just rambling on and sometimes I do that, but that's in short what this movie, in my opinion, um, what Chucky represents within the movie is what I'm trying to say is fear and we have to face it. We can't run or hide from it. Otherwise it will consume and take over us is basically the idea. So I'm going to stop rambling and I'm going to move on to my reviews. Basement rejects say 
This movie excels by building jumps and scares. The film smartly doesn't show Chucky moving around a lot and often shows POV scenes of Chucky's attacks. Scenes like the battery scene are great and skillfully put together. Plus, I do love the burn Chuck doll. I think one of my favorite scenes has to be the little kid taking the Chicago L to the slums with a doll and no one saying anything. And I remember now as a parent, I'm watching that scene. I'm like, and no one saying anything about this little six-year-old kid on the bus like by himself? No one? Like, as soon as I read that review, I was like, I kept thinking the same thing. No one says anything about this little boy. Anyways, Strange Harbor says, Set execution harnesses a popular horror cinematography technique that fully takes advantage of Chucky's diminutive of stature. Wide shots that draw the attention between the background and foreground are mixed with the victim's POV shots so that the audience dwells on what's just outside of what the camera of what the camera's line of sight. What's seen versus unseen create a gut tension stringing along an audience just waiting to react. The idea brew for effective jump scares. So overall, this movie is, you know, it's fun yet creepy and it's definitely a breath of fresh air in the, you know, slasher flick subgenre. When the horror genre was starting to become repetitive, you know, churning out sequels upon sequels. Chucky, like Freddy and Jason before him, he too became a horror icon, cementing his place in the horror movie Hall of Fame, in my opinion. Even if you've never seen this movie, you know who Chucky is. He is the face and the most infamous of the killer doll trope. He is the ultimate killer doll in my book. And like I said, you don't even have to watch these movies to know who Chucky is. My daughter has yet to see a child's play movie and she knows who Chucky is. So anyways, Brad Dorff, who is the voice of Chucky, has become as iconic as Robert England as Freddy and Doug Bradley as Pinhead. Brad is Chucky. He is the voice of Chucky. He is who gave Chucky charm and wit. He is the one who gave Chucky life and personality. Without him, Chucky would not be the horror icon he is today. Like I said, Robert England is Freddy. Doug Bradley is Pinhead. Brad Dourif is Chucky. And I don't think if it wasn't for Brad Dourif being the voice of Chucky, he would not be the icon he is today. If you haven't seen this movie, you need to see it. And you know I'm going to say this. You got, and th But this is like a, a horror movie. Like, you got to watch this horror movie. This movie is amazing. And... It's fun. And like I said, it's fun yet creepy. And you just got to see the movie that started the entire Chucky franchise spawning six sequels, a remake, and even a TV series. So if you haven't seen this movie, you've got to see. In fact, watch all of them. I've seen all but the TV series. I think I'm on episode five of the TV series. So I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you for joining me here on Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. Again, I'm your host, Sarah Sin. Thank you for sticking around as I discuss horror history, psychology, and mental health within horror movies. Hope you enjoyed the show. Again, thank you for listening. And especially want to say Merry Christmas to everyone who listens to the show. I hope you had a wonderful day. I know I did. Um, I was surrounded by family and, of course, the most important person in my life, my daughter. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a horror movie out there for everyone to enjoy. So thank you.